Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC. Discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Monday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first live podcast here on Restream and YouTube, Facebook as well. So welcome. Uh, we're so excited to have this first episode. This is the Life as a Coder podcast, our first bonus episode that we're going to present to you live on, um, of course, uh, YouTube. You can share it. And of course, on Facebook. Now, here at the Life as a Coder podcast, our goal is to, of course, bring you uh, timely industry topics for, of course, the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. Uh, my name is Jennifer McNamara, and our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. And if you're a first-time listener and viewer, we thank you to, for joining us today. And if you like this uh, podcast, this platform. You can always find us on many platforms. We're on, uh, of course, Spotify, Apple, and iHeartRadio, among any, many others. And we will be, of course, uploading this episode uh, to our podcast station for you to listen to. Uh, and so we're so excited you're here. Our disclaimer, as always, is that our podcasts and our live podcasts are not to be taken as legal or professional advice. Uh, they are based on our years of experience here at the Life as a Coder podcast and the coding and billing industry. Close to 20 years now for me and my uh, my partner in crime, Angel Kendall, probably the same. So over, over 30 years. And our goal is to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. Our bonus episode today I'm so excited about because I love talking about, of course, coding education and new stuff. So we're going to talk about vaccination station and what's new in 2022. So Basically, I wanted to talk about the vaccination coding. Uh, when it comes to the, the coding, of course, it's on our minds right now, right? But it actually, as an educator, when I teach for the CPC exam, one thing I notice is it's a commonly missed area of coding. It is, of course, found in the medicine section when we code for our vaccinations. And so I wanted to talk about that today. There's a lot of variables, a lot of things that we have to be aware of when we're coding for vaccinations. So I'm very excited uh, that you're here today. And of course, you can type in your questions. And at the end, we will go ahead and answer some of those questions live if we have any. So the first thing I want to talk about, of course, uh, is the immunization versus vaccination definitions. And those of you who listen to my podcast and, of course, listen to our webinars, uh, you know that I love definitions. I love breaking apart words and understanding the meaning because it really adds weight and helps us understand the coding so much more. And of course, medical terminology is the root of our, of course, understanding of how to code. So when we think about the word immunity, what is that? Well, according to the CDC, this is protection from an infectious disease. So in essence, if you're immune to something, uh, you can be exposed to it without becoming infected potentially. That's the goal, right? And then for the word vaccine, we think of the word vaccine. This, of course, is a product. This is what stimulates that immune response in a person, right, um, to make them immune to a disease, to protect them from that disease. And, of course, we know, as we're going to talk about with vaccines, there are different routes of administration, um, ways that this can happen, right? And the word uh, vaccination, this just means this is the act of introducing that vaccine into the body to produce that immune response or to become immunized, right? So we think of the words vaccination, immunization, and we sometimes 
think of them as the same, but they are different. One is, of course, the cause. One is the effect, right? So we want to understand the difference between those words. It's just really important, right? So now that we have that out of the way, we can talk about the vaccine coding. Now, for most of your practices out there, if you are in a pediatric practice, for instance, you are most likely well aware of the amount of vaccines that you administer um, every year. And if you're in a primary care physician practice, of course, as well, there are many practices out there that a lot of their practice is based on vaccinations. And so a lot of the revenue comes from that. There, are study, there was a study out there that mentioned that up to 22% of average practices, uh, their incoming revenue comes from vaccinations. And so we think about not just the coding and billing. I, of course, in the past have been a revenue cycle manager, and I understand that it's not just about the coding and the billing. It's about the practice expense, and it's about getting those vaccines, storing them and then administering them. There's a cost beyond just what we get reimbursed, the cost. So a lot of practices are really concerned about proper coding and getting paid properly because of the cost and expense that it takes to actually produce um, or to provide these, right? So we want to understand the coding, right? So I've been coding since 20, uh, excuse me, 2003, actually. And so I remember in 2011, and it was kind of crazy, we got these new administration codes. So for those of you who have been coding for administration and or for vaccines for quite some time, you probably remember that in 2011, we had those new administration codes, the 90460 and the 90461. And so we had to understand how to code these, right? Because we also had what our 90471 codes and so forth to 74, we have those as well. And so we have to understand the difference because we need to know for vaccinations, when is it appropriate to code the with counseling codes, the 90460 and 61? And when is it appropriate to code the 90471 to 74? Now, when we think about counseling, what are we doing? We're talking to our patients about vaccinations, uh, the risks and benefits that are, of course, accompanied that. And we think about we're talking to individual patients. Some patients may have specific concerns. Uh, of course, if they're under a certain age, they're a child, their parents are going to be with them and you're going to be counseling them and, and giving them you know, information about the vaccine and so forth. So I usually typically see providers giving this counseling, especially if they're under a certain age. Uh, but again, it can happen at any age, typically. But we're looking at the fact these 90460-90461, they're doing that counseling uh, for those that are 19 years of age or under. And then if it doesn't fall in that category, then we have the 90471-74. to but the thing with the 90460 and 61 we always want to remember is that it's component-based, right? And we're going to talk about some of these components so we can kind of, kind of split them out and look at them and, and kind of see what they are. So, for instance, uh, when we code for certain vaccines, some of them have a vaccine or toxoid component. And so it's not about how many vaccines are administered, but it's based on how many components are in that single vaccine. So, for instance, if we were to administer the rotavirus vaccine, this, of course, and we provide counseling, we're going to report the 90460 and the 90680. The 90460 is the administration code, and the 90680 is the actual vaccine. And then we have our MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. Can you guess how many components are in an MMR vaccine? Well, there are three. We have the measles, mumps, and rubella. So we have to know how many components are in that one vaccine administration. 
So we, of course, have our 90460. That's going to be our initial uh, vaccine administration code. But then comes in the 90461. That's our additional vaccine component code. So since we have three components, we have 90460 for the first component. And then we have 90461 times two, two units for the additional components of that vaccine, right? Then we have the Pentacel vaccine. Now we're going to upload in our show notes for y'all um, a diagram or kind of a snippet here of the of examples of these and how many are in it. Now the Pentacel has diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, polio, and HIV. The Hib. So we have to know how to, of course, extract those components. So of course we have 90698 uh, uh, for the Pentacil vaccine. That is, of course, the code for all of those components in one vaccine. And so the 90460 is our first component, that uh, our code, right, for the first antigen. And then 90461 times four, right? And then of course we have to list out our, of course, vaccine code. Now, if we were not going to provide counseling, if this is without counseling, and it's going to fall into the category of 90471 or 904 or 74, we have to understand that that's a little bit different, right? Because with those codes, it's not per component, it's per vaccine. So when we have that um, information, we have to go with um, the different vaccines that are reported. One thing I want to back up and say, though, remember that with the vaccine administration for the components, if you're going to administer several vaccines, remember, you got to start all over again. So you have three vaccines you're reporting, but each of them have different components, right? So you have the rotavirus, of course, has one. You have the MMR has three. You're going to have to report that 90460 multiple times every time you administer a new vaccine. So for instance, the rotavirus 90460 is the first line. That's all it has, right? And we can report our vaccine 90680. MMR has three. So we got to start back over again at our 90460 with our 90461 times two. And we'll also have to report the vaccine, of course. And then the Pentacel, we start over again, another 90460 with the 90461 with those units. So you may have several lines there that you'll have to report. And of course, uh, it gets confusing when you have to look at different payer requirements. Um, so that's also something you want to be aware of. And there are several factors that we have to consider um, when we want to choose the correct code. So ask yourself, uh, does the code description tell me that I have to include counseling? Does the age a requirement? And you have to look at that. Now, we're going to report 90471 um, and those, those administration codes for the initial first vaccine. Remember, we have initial and subsequent. Keep that straight in your head when you're going coding for either one, whether it's with counseling or without. And so we want to make sure we understand those components. It's also important, especially for those 90471 to 74s, the route of administration. Because we look at the code and to report a single intramuscular vaccination, it's 90471. And then if we had two additional ones, we'd be doing 90472 times two for the additional intramuscular administrations. Now, let's say we had to report two intramuscular injections, one oral and one nasal. So then we have the additional um, administration codes, right? The 90471 for that initial one, um, and 90472 for an additional intramuscular administration, and so forth. But read the description of the codes because the intra um, immunization for administration by intranasal 
or oral route, each additional vaccine is the 90474 because it's our additional one. We've chosen to report our initial vaccine with 90471, which in the description includes percutaneous, intradermal, subcutaneous, or intramuscular. And the description says one vaccine, single or combination. So we have to read that full description to know that it doesn't matter with the 90471 to 74 series. It's not per component, it's per vaccine. So if we're not doing administration with counseling, we're going to be in this category. And we read that full description. If we were, of course, reporting the intranasal one, and that was it, we would have 90473 as our in, in initial one, right? And 90474 is of course, intranasal or oral routes, each additional vaccine. So that is where we report our 90474 uh, with that intranasal one. So it just kind of makes sense, right, to split it out and code by the description. Your CPT code book has all the information that you're going to need in order to code these appropriately. Now, I do want to talk about something um, that, of course, is important, and that has to do with, of course, uh, the diagnosis codes. Now we are going to talk today about the new 2022 guidelines and we're going to talk about Z codes. But again, remember that when it comes to the administration codes, the administration code is Z23. Really isn't much about um, else to talk about, but I have seen in the past with students and others uh, that get confused as to the code. Remember, our Z codes are for those instances when the patient does not have symptoms, right? They are trying to become immune to a disease. They don't have it yet. Remember that. They don't have it yet. I've seen a lot of errors when, you know, we see exams, they give you multiple choice options, right? And you choose the disease, right? We're going to give them measles. We're going to give them mumps. They don't have it yet. Remember, we code the Z23. This is, of course, the administration um, diagnosis for a um, vaccine or immunization. We're here to get that immunization. We don't actually have the disease. I wanted to kind of make that clear because it can be confusing. We don't want to give them something right they don't have. And we've seen that, of course, with the coronavirus, getting the vaccine. You know, there are a lot of guidelines. And in our discussion today, when it comes to the um, 2022 updates, we are going to refer to some of those guidelines. But again, we're not going to go into too much detail because we've had them in 2021. We understand, hopefully by now, um, how to report these. Um, and we've been, of course, administering vaccines uh, for the coronavirus uh, since early this year. So hopefully we uh, have got that down. But again, if you have any questions, we are here, of course, to answer those questions for you. So we are very excited, of course, uh, to talk about this next topic here. We're going to talk about the ICD-10 2022 uh, guidelines updates. And there are a lot of new codes. And of course, we can't cover them all. So we're going to talk mostly about the guidelines. And within those guidelines, as we know, there were some new codes mentioned as it relates to the guidelines. But definitely get out there and, and look it up. You know, when I first got them, I was so excited. I like to dig in. First, first of all, look for those bold letters, right? Those bold letterings that tell us, yes, we have new guidelines. And I like to get out my old book, my, what's not old yet, I guess, my 2021 book. I like to get that out. I like to look at those guidelines from last year that we got the updates in, right? What's different? What makes it stand out? What makes it stand apart, right? So that's what I wanted to do today is, uh, is do that. And so when we look at those official guidelines, I'm an ortho coder. 
I, of course, code for breast surgeon. And so my first inclination was laterality. Okay, yes. <laughs> I'm always concerned about laterality. And we do have official guidelines for that, right? In our section B, we have the official laterality guidelines that tell us what to do for one side versus bilateral and things like that. I had to report it if different things happen. But there was an update in 2022. So let's talk about this. It says that when laterality is not documented by the patient's provider, the code assignment for the affected side can be based on the medical record documentation from other clinicians. This is great, right? Because sometimes our physicians, they just don't give it to us, right? Or we don't have that official documentation. But it does mention that if there is that conflicting record documentation regarding the effective side, then of course, the attending provider should be queried for clarification. So when we think of queries, we think of inpatient coding. But again, we do also want to query our professional fee side providers uh, for clarification. And we don't do official query forms in course in the, in the office, but we can, of course, query them, ask them a question, converse with them, and get clarification for them. Maybe if they need to do an addendum, they can. Uh, the codes for unspecified side, of course, as we know, should rarely be used. Come on, guys. Let's try to document the side. We know, of course, it makes sense. Uh, we hope our providers um, are aware of the side they're, of course, performing it on, and they are. It's just a matter of actually putting it in writing, right? It's a matter of documenting that. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got my coffee today, and I'm going to take a drink, and so here we go. Have you heard? Now the CCS exam is available without restrictions. Now is a great time to jumpstart your coding career with one of the most popular certifications in the country. The majority of employers require a CCS credential, and at Ozark Coding Alliance, we're here to help you achieve this goal. Join our workshop this July for only $129 and earn five CEUs. You can register at ccscoder.com. Hope you have your coffee today. It's a great day for coffee, at least where I'm at. Um, and it's it's a great day to be inside and have my coffee. I love it. All right. So next, I'm going to move along. And the next thing I want to talk about, of course, is the coronavirus infections. Now, those of you who code symptoms, it's, of course, in the symptom section, talking about signs and symptoms, and we got some new codes, right? Are we so excited that we have some periods after the R05? Forever it was like R05, R05 for cough. But now we have specific new codes. R05.1, acute cough, right? Acute, recent, just happened in the last few weeks, right? It's, it's a recent cough. It's not chronic. And then we just have regular cough, right? Now, um, unspecified. So we have the difference now between acute cough and the unspecified. So that's great, right? So they do tell us in the official guidelines that for patients that present with these signs and symptoms, like the fever, et cetera, all the things that uh, those who have the coronavirus have, symptoms they have, right? But a definitive diagnosis has not been established, right? We don't have an official test result, right, of, of COVID-19. So we have our symptoms. And so they have these two options for us now, the acute cough versus cough unspecified. Again, we want to have the word acute documented. Not only does that help us with our diagnosis selection, but it also helps us with what? Our new guidelines, of course, we have to stick with the medical decision-making before evaluation and management. So I'm all about words like acute, chronic, severe, exacerbated. I love those words. So please, please, providers, give us those words. It really helps us as coders. Next, we want to talk about the next section in that, of course, coronavirus infections, the J, follow-up visits. Um, so after the COVID-19 infection has resolved, it, of course, mentioned previously that this is for individuals who had previously had COVID-19, 
but they've added wording. They've added terminology without residual symptoms or conditions. So I encourage you to find those bold letterings in your guidelines and read them because there's a lot of information there. I'm going to highlight some of the things I thought were cool. I thought were really great. And you, of course, will most likely find it cool too. I don't know. But for follow-up visits, it says for individuals with symptoms or conditions that are related to a previous infection, they specifically tell you to go to guideline course section one, uh, chapter specific, chapter one, G1M. Remember, that's your infectious disease chapter specific guidelines. Chapter one in your ICD-10 book is infectious disease, right? So when they say IC1, I'm sorry, 1C1, they're going to be, that's going to be section one of your guidelines, chapter specific, and then chapter one. And then within chapter one, you're going to see G1M. You're going to further indent it to find that specific wording, right? They're telling you where to go. They're also telling you to go to chapter 21, C8, for factors influencing health status. That's our Z codes, right? They're telling you to go there for any other information that you might need to report additionally at that time. So they're telling you that this is for patients without residual symptoms or conditions, those follow-ups, right? Now, for follow-up codes um, that are used to explain continuing surveillance following completed treatment, they imply that the condition has been fully treated and no longer exists. That is part of Chapter 21 Guidelines, C8. The reason they take you there is because they want you to understand when it comes to those factors influencing a health status, that is how they interpret something, right? A condition has been fully treated and no longer exists. So that's when we would code from that Z code, right? It's asymptomatic. There's, they're not experiencing any symptoms. It's fully treated. They no longer have it. And that's how we code from that section versus coding symptoms and so forth. Now, next comes the letter M. So this is for our post-COVID conditions for the sequela. So for sequela of COVID-19, of course, we understand the word sequela, why it's a residual effect. We have sequela for injuries. We have sequela for other things like cardiovascular accidents. So we understand they're having a residual effect from having COVID-19. So they can develop this following that infection. So if that's the case, we have a new code, U09.9. So when you go to your U codes, now you don't see it, right? But when you go in 2022, we're going to get our book soon, guys. And we're going to be able to open that book up and we're going to see the U09.9. Post-COVID-19 infect condition, unspecified, right? And this, of course, it mentions should not be assigned for manifestations of an active current COVID-19 infection, right? They want to differentiate between post-COVID conditions versus the current active infection, right? And so that's what we want to be aware of. Now, they do have a note here um, that you can refer to page 31 of the guidelines. Um, and you're going to see that it mentions that if a patient has a condition associated with a previous COVID-19 infection and develops a new a new active current infection, we can report U09.9 in conjunction with code U07.1. And of course, remember, I'm not going to be the one here reporting these. You're going to be reporting these per your documentation. So read the documentation and refer back to other guidelines that refer you to sequencing, right? You want to be aware of all the guidelines. So yes, it says they can be build in conjunction with each other, but always read the official guidelines for certain situations that be maybe your situation, your documentation may indicate the order, right? So we want to make sure that we read that. 
that's just what I wanted to point out. It's time for another ICD 10 CM break with Jennifer. Hey guys, I'm back with more ICD 10 CM tips. So of course, we've had this discussion previously in many episodes talking about how important our ICD 10 CM coding is and understanding the guidelines. One of the most important guidelines that's on every exam and is often misinterpreted is our combination codes for hypertension. So I wanted to kind of break this up and and give a little review, little reminders, um, what we see here in the guidelines. So for hypertension with heart disease, remember this of course is hypertension that of course has uh, also the patient also has heart condition classified to categories I fifty or I fifty one four to I fifty one nine. If the patient has a health condition with their heart and hypertension and the heart condition falls in those categories, we have to assign a combination code from I-11. And remember, our notes and our conventions tell us to add an additional code for either the type of heart failure or the other condition classified to I-514 to I-519, right? So uh, there are course guidelines that tell us that these are assumed relationships because if there's a width in the index and that condition is followed, we assume a relationship. There are times though when we code them separately if a provider specifically tells us that there's a different cause. So that is the only way. We have a specific documentation, the provider unlinking them, right? That there's a different cause for that hypertension, then that's when we would separate them out. But otherwise, if there is a assumed relationship as in the index, we assume that relationship. Next comes in our next combination code, I-12. This is when they have hypertension and chronic kidney disease. We understand that, again, assume relationship because chronic kidney disease is linked in the index to hypertension in the indentations. So we have N, uh, N18, of course, as our add-on codes. We always have to look at our tabular, always code from there, never code from our index. The index just leads us straight to our tabular and our tabular instructs us to also code for the type or the stage of CKD. Uh, recently, of course, this last year, we got those updates for the additional codes in uh, stage three. So be aware of those as well. And again, if the patient has hypertensive chronic kidney disease and acute renal failure, we have rules for that. We have an additional code for acute renal failure that is required. Next comes our last combination code, or I-13, which is, of course, hypertension with both heart and kidney involvement. Now, if they do have heart failure, of course, we have to document and code for that. If there is, of course, um, another condition, we would report that as well. Then, of course, always, always, we have, remember, all three are, are of course, here. So we have to have the N18 codes as well. So we will have several codes to report for the hypertension, the heart disease, and the CKD. Do not code those individually. Use your combination code of I-13, then add your add-on codes for each individual um, condition as indicated by your tabular notes. I do want to go into another area that's commonly misinterpreted, and that is for the acute myocardial infarctions. So these common areas in the official guidelines get misinterpreted, but it's important to understand them. So we have type 1 acute myocardial infarction. Again, the site is very specific. Uh, type 1 is uh, an N-SEMI, for instance, if that you, if you have a type 1 N-SEMI. Remember, N-SEMI stands for non-ST elevation, so partial blockage. If it evolves to a STEMI, you're going to assign the STEMI. And if a type 1 
STEMI, which is an ST elevation, so complete blockage, converts to a N-STEMI or a partial blockage, you're still going to assign the STEMI. That's how that works for the facility. And our timing is important, very important. We have to understand the time frame of that uh, AMI. So the acute AMI uh, time frame is four weeks old or 28 days. This includes transfers and, of course, the patient requiring to continue that care, right? After the four weeks, it, of course, is going to be an aftercare code. Uh, we'll have to assign that. And we want to understand, of course, the information when it comes to coding the I-22. This is our subsequent acute myocardial infarction. Now, a code from this category is used when a patient has suffered a type 1 or unspecified AMI and a new one happens or pops up within that four-week time frame from the initial. You definitely want to look at the definition for other diagnosis. Which one meets the definition of principal diagnosis? That will be, of course, determined by the sequencing um, and the determination of the circumstances of that encounter. Uh, but we do have a guideline specifically telling us not to assign I-22 for subsequent AMIs for other than type 1 or unspecified. It tells us to see I-21.A1 to A9 if we have other types, right? So be aware of that guideline. So that's just some tips I wanted to offer today, just some basic things, um, reminders, right, that we need to be aware of when we're coding for uh, the cardiovascular system for ICD-10-CM. Thank you for joining me for this ICD-10 tip. Now let's move along to chapter two, neoplasms. And those of you who know me know I love to teach about neoplasms. And this is not a neoplasm uh, instruction education. I do that in my regular ICD-10 class for, for CCS exam prep. Uh, but I am gonna talk about a specific guideline that was new, that was great, I thought, for breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So this is of course the C84.7A. This was a new code. That's going to be a new code in 2022, which is going to be great because for those patients who specifically have a breast implant associated um, lymphoma, so there, this is, of course, specific documentation. This, these can develop around a breast implant. So we have C84.7A. And of course, this, of course, uh, has a guideline, specific guideline in chapter two for the neoplasms. And it makes sure to reference, do not assign a complication code from chapter 19. This is not a complication code scenario. They have a specific code because it's related to that lymphoma that is, of course, developing around the breast implant. They don't want us to code from a complication. Next, let's move along to our medical conditions. And this, of course, is in the section for, uh, for the um, substance abuse. So it's number four. And this is, of course, conditions due to psychoactive substance use, abuse, and dependence. They do give us an example in the actual guidelines talking about assigning codes for medical conditions um, when they have that psychoactive substance abuse, use, or dependence. So they tell us how to report those codes. So I'm, of course, a GI coder, and we do have a lot of patients with cirrhosis of the liver and other conditions like pancreatitis that are alcohol-related. So in comes in our combination codes um, that include alcohol-induced acute pancreatitis, K85.2, for instance. And it tells us we would also report the F10 code, right, for that alcohol dependence uncomplicated, for instance. Okay, I'm not saying the patient has dependence, but I'm saying if you have that documentation, that is the code range you would be in. 
And it makes a note specifically in the guidelines. They want to make sure we understand. We're not going to infer this as alcohol dependence with other alcohol-induced disorders. Remember, you know, we have those other codes, right? We don't want to always go there because remember when there is a specific code that includes that concept, there isn't an applicable other code anymore because the other code is for things that are other, right? There's not already a code established to describe it. We have documentation in the um, record that, of course, tells us there is a specific code, right? If, for instance, we had a condition that there isn't a combination code or isn't a code to describe what's happening, we can use that other code because we have the documentation. There just isn't a code to describe it. But in our situation, we do have a code. We do have alcohol-induced acute pancreatitis to describe that. So F10.288 is not the appropriate code because that's for other alcohol-induced disorders. They give you, of course, inclusion notes under there that tell us examples of what that would be. But if there isn't a code to describe your condition, then of course, yes, you can use it. But because we have that specific documentation, we're going to code K85.2, F10.20, and so forth. And then we have number five. I'm super excited about this. I love when they tell me I can do something, right? So now we can, if they have that blood alcohol level A code uh, from category Y90, evidence of alcohol involvement determined by blood alcohol level. This can be assigned uh, when this information is documented and the patient's provider has documented a condition classifiable to a category F10. The blood alcohol level does not need to be documented by the patient's provider in order for it to be coded. Great, guys. I love this. So now we can give the insurance company more information. We can fully describe this patient's condition. They have alcoholic pancreatitis due to alcohol dependence. We're going to code our alcohol dependence code and our Y90 code for the blood alcohol level. So we have all that information now that we can report. Next, I want to move along course and talk about our chapter 12 codes. There was um, some update there, just a brief one that I like to point out because I'm a podiatry coder. I do code for pressure ulcers regularly for my providers and of course orthopedics as well, general surgery. They all have it. But again, when it comes to the debridement codes, as a podiatry coder, my podiatrist is in wound care all the time. Every Monday he goes to wound care and he every time sees I'm coding for debridement. So if during an encounter, the stage of an unstageable pressure ulcer is revealed after debridement, assign only the code for the stage revealed following the debridement. We want to know that specific stage they were in after that debridement because they did that debridement right and they can see the stage right. And so that is what they're coding, right? That thought was great because these little additional tips for us, these additional updates for us really help us as coders. I know every year I think, okay, oh, I wish that we would have further clarification on something like this because it happens so often and I want to know, okay, like how do I know this? Because um, how, how do we know how to code some of these stages? Until they come up with a guideline, we don't have information until we do, right? So that's that's really great. Next, um, we have in chapter 18, we had some symptom signs um, and those lab finding updates on the coma scale. So when we look at the coma scale, R40.20, it does tell us for that unspecified coma, this can be assigned in conjunction with codes for any medical condition. That was great, right? So if you're coding 
for the coma scale, those coma codes, it's great now. We have that specific clarification. This code can be assigned for codes with any medical condition. But it does tell us, of course, not to report it for unspecified coma individual or total Glasgow coma scale scores for a patient with a medically induced coma or a sedated patient. That's, of course, there as well. And it mentions that if multiple scores are captured in the first 24 hours after the admission, assign only the code for the score at the time of admission. We have our inpatient coders who would probably appreciate that, right? And ICD-10-CM does not classify coma scores that are reported after admission, but less than 24 hours later. That's a clarification as well that we've been given. And I wanted to talk about our chapter 21. Now, these are important guidelines that we wanted to highlight. Um, I really love uh, my Chapter 21 guidelines. And in a previous episode, we did talk about uh, some Z codes and how to understand them. And for a long time, I have always felt, you know, we didn't have really great clarification, but we get denials, right? We get denials when we try to put a history code primary sometimes and other codes that we don't have specific clarification on whether or not they should be primary or secondary. But guys, we have it now. We have specific clarification. There's no gray areas anymore, guys. The reason for the encounter, like the screening or counseling, should be sequenced first. And the appropriate personal or family history codes should be assigned as additional diagnoses. Now, I always do this when I code for my colonoscopies. I do my Z1211 with my Z86010 for screening of a colonoscopy and if the patient has a history of colon polyps. Or, of course, if they have a family history of something with that colon cancer or a uh, personal history. So it's really important to understand we have these encounter four codes for a reason. There are so many of them. And in a previous podcast with my ICD-10 tips, I loved to break these out because I think so many of us, we just forget. And this also goes along with our vaccination discussion. When you have a patient coming in for a routine examination, for instance, they're coming in for a routine examination. We have Z codes for that. At that visit, they may decide to go ahead and administer a vaccine. So you have two, of course, Z codes. You have the administrate or the um, in encounter four codes, right? And then we have our administration, our Z23. So we can report both at that visit. The Z23 would go on, of course, the vaccine code and the administration or the encounter four code for the routine examination would go with our routine exam code. But again, we have to know the difference between those codes and, of course, report them together if they're applicable. If we have codes that fully describe our visit, let's use them, right? So let's use those. Let's be aware of those. So I encourage you to open up your Z code section always, always, always. There's so many of them, but get used to them. Get comfortable with what's there because it's going to be in your brain the more you review it. And then when you see documentation, you see an example of something, you're going to remember, oh, yes, there is potentially a Z code for this encounter, I want to get the right encounter for code. I want to describe my encounter for code that fully describes what's happening the correct way, right? And then counseling, number 10. So Z71.85. This is for specifically, this is a new code, encounter for immunization safety counseling. And they tell us it's to be used for counseling of the patient or caregiver regarding the safety of a vaccine. And a reminder that it's not to be used for provision of general information regarding risks and potential side effects during routine encounters for the administration of vaccines. 
And then, of course, uh, we want to, of course, keep that in mind. Let's move along now to my favorite Z code section, at least right now, is our social determinants of health, SDOH. I love these codes, uh, not only because I love ICD-10, but I also love evaluation and management. So properly documenting these conditions helps us uh, with proper documentation. It helps us with the risk adjustment because it's part of that. It also helps us with our moderate level of evaluation and management. We can't underestimate that. We can't over overstate it, that it's really important to educate our providers. They know, of course, uh, hopefully know what's going on with their patients. And like I mentioned previously, it's really important to get to know your patients, getting to know them and, you know, asking them what's going on in their lives, because we never know um, if something they're going to, going to appropriate to examine them and to give them proper treatment. We may need to refer them to another specialist based on the information they give us. So social determinants of health are very important. These, of course, are found in categories Z55 to Z65. These are persons with potential health hazards related to socioeconomic and uh, psychosocial circumstances. And of course, in 2021, we had that update, right, that they can self-identify. The providers just have to put that information in the medical record. They have to move that into the record. The patient has identified they're having these conditions and the provider or a clinical person that is going to be documenting that is going to put that in the note. It also mentions here that the code assignment can be based on the documentation from clinicians involved in the care of the patient who are not the patient's provider because it represents the social information rather than medical diagnoses. So that is important to note that this can come from um, anywhere. It can come from social information from social workers, community health workers, case managers, nurses. You know, I know when I was doing workers' comp, for instance, some patients would come in with their caseworker for workers' comp. So there are sometimes case managers um, or people that accompany patients to their visits. And so that can be identified um, from them as well. So you are going to want to reference the guidelines, of course, that report that talk about these social determinants of health. Um, and of course, we have several categories. Z55 is, of course, problems related to education and literacy. Z56 is problems related to employment and unemployment. We had a lot of that in 2020, didn't we? Z57 is occupational exposure uh, to risk factors. Z58, uh, problems related to the uh, physical environment, their actual environment at home, right? And then Z59, uh, problems related to housing and economic circumstances. Those can affect their health. You know, unfortunately, some patients do have issues related to housing and economic circumstances that affect their mental and emotional physical health as well. And Z63, I want to bring that one out. Other problems related uh, to primary support groups, including family circumstances. There's so much in there. Now, I encourage you to read through those specific inclusion notes under those codes, examples. Look at those examples. And if you want a reference, it does tell us to see uh, chapter, um, or sorry, section one of the official guidelines, B14. That will give us specific information as to coding documentation by clinicians other than the patient's provider. We were given specific clarification on that in, of course, section B of, of section one. So I hope you really enjoyed learning a little bit more about these guidelines and, of course, vaccination coding.
Here at the Life as a Coder podcast, our goal, like I said, is to give you that information on how to be better coders, how to go to the guidelines, how to uh, reference certain things. And if your provider needs to know where you got something, tell them where you got it. Show them that guideline. There are a lot of information out there. Um, CMS, of course, Amer uh, the American Hospital Association Coding Clinic. We have the CPC assistance access to that. Um, how many of us love having our uh, CPT assistant articles on our phone now with our app? I love having my app available. I can just, of course, I'm coding something. I can go right to that documentation, right to that official help from the CPT assistant uh, reference in my CPT codebook. I love having that. Now, I do want to talk about something very special that we are, of course, excited to uh, offer, and it's our upcoming Virtual Healthcare Summit 2021. We're going to have a lot of presenters from the uh, country, industry leaders. We have, of course, a shout out to Barbara Kabuzi, my one of my favorite, of course, consultants in the country. She's going to talk to us about appeals and denials. Two-hour presentation, guys. You don't want to miss this presentation from Barbara Kabuzi of CRN Healthcare Solutions. And we're going to have our keynote speaker, Dr. Jose Delgado. Um, and he is going to talk to us about what challenges are facing the healthcare industry today. Some of the some of those things that we see in healthcare, uh, new things that are coming out that we want to understand better. And of course, he of course is a consultant uh, for compliance, and so he's going to talk about compliance issues and other things that affect us. And of course, we have Christine Hall, great great uh, expert. Maybe you've heard you've caught her uh, morning coffee uh, discussions week with her. So I step out. And of course, listen to her discussions about uh, coding. Get out your morning coffee and uh, talk to Christine about these uh, conditions, uh, these these issues that pop up in healthcare. She's great, and she's gonna be there talking to us about several items as well. And of course, I'll be there talking about, of course, the plastics and cosmetic surgery. I'll be joined by Betty Hovey. I'm so excited to have her with us, and she's going to be uh, talking to us about, um, of course the CCS exam. We're going to talk about how to prepare for the CCS coding exam with the HEMA. We're so excited for that. There's a, going to be a urology expert. We're going to have a behavioral health expert. I'm so excited uh, to have uh, that, of course, with us. And we have our physician. We have Dr. Hill Headley, who's going to talk to us about um, the orthopedic musculoskeletal system. And we're going to have a, a, a chiropractor available for us to talk to us about uh, those conditions um, uh, for the spine. And don't forget our E&M discussions. Yes, we have a full a weekend full of discussions on evaluation management 2021. So the first day, we're going to have breaking apart those problems addressed. We're going to have a specific discussion just for that. We're going to talk about physician burnout. We're going to talk about how physicians are getting burned out <laughs> um, and how these new guidelines can help with that uh, when they properly understand, of course, their use, right? We're going to break apart, of course, the data section. We're going to break apart the risk. All of that's going to be done uh, throughout the entire weekend. We're going to have a full smorgasbord of E&M discussions. And, of course, we're going to talk about, of course, telehealth compliance. That's always going to be something we have to talk about. Uh, so we're going to have that, of course. Uh, never want to forget our telehealth. It's so important right now to understand those guidelines, understanding the telehealth and how to report those. Now, I do want to uh, thank everyone for joining us here at the Life as a Coder podcast series. We're so excited to have you. And our goal is always to inspire and educate. And as I always say, knowledge is power. Don't give up on coding. Keep learning and keep growing. 
Well, this has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder. I want to thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Monday for a new episode. We'll catch you then. Project Resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Be sure to reference this podcast when you place your order.